Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Tuesdays with Trey, or should we say the first Tuesday of 2024 with Trey, there's a lot to discuss and look forward to in the new year from a presidential election in the fall to the summer Olympics to I'm sure something's going to happen in the winter and the spring that's going to bring us new discoveries and new things to talk about and We'll encourage us to continue to visit with brilliant and entertaining guests who challenge us and make us think and make us laugh and make us reflect. And then hopefully, above all else, maybe make us better. So before we embrace the new year, I want us to say a word of appreciation for what we had in the old year. A word of gratitude for what we had in the old year, evidenced by remembering that's actually a compliment. If you think about it, to remember something is sometimes that's a compliment. So I want to compliment the guest we had last year by remembering and highlighting a few of our favorites. It's hard to pick. It's like having, you know, children not supposed to have favorites. We don't have favorites. You love them equally but differently. But I am going to highlight a few. So let's start at the beginning of the year with Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who, by the time you hear this, will not only be a former Speaker of the House, but he will have left the House altogether and embarked on the next chapter of his life. And time will tell if my prediction is true, but I assured Kevin, and more importantly, his mother, Bert, that life after politics is much better than life in politics. I want to give our viewers, our listeners, a sense of judging success. I mean, the media headwind, they're already giving out report cards. I mean, you are two months into being speaker, really, maybe not even that. And they're already uh, giving out report cards. So what is the proper way to judge success, say, at the end of your... I mean, to me, I think success is stopping things that you don't agree with. I mean, it, it's not affirmative, it's defensive, but that's success. How oh, yeah. do think you for, define Think success? for a moment, yeah, think for a moment if we weren't in the position we are right now. And we have a five-seat majority. So at any given time, there's a number of members out. Do you want to stop inflation from growing? So you want to stop Democrats from spending more money? That could be successful. If you want to stop this wokeism from growing, if you want to stop... Uh, the runaway of what they have done, that's that's victory to start out with, first of all. Now, what can you do on the other end to, to not just stop it, but to start changing the course of it, to laying things up? How do you, from one part, 
we just opened the Capitol back up so the public can come into the Capitol. They weren't able to do that. Let the people be part of the people's house. Now, why don't you take some of those committee meetings, which members didn't even have to show up for work. Now they have to show up, so they have to listen to the people. But why don't we take some of those hearings out across the country? So maybe you might not be able to pass everything into law, but could you bring attention to it that stops it as well? Can we bring more attention to what's happening on the border to stop the fentanyl, to stop millions of people just coming across? We have started moving our hearings to the border from the committees. The Democrats tried to ignore it, but they're not going to be able to ignore it any longer. We won the majority. And one of the big arguments was they still had the mandate for vaccine for the men and women in the military. They may have already had COVID. And you know what we were able to do? I didn't have to pass a bill, but when we had the NDAA, I made sure that was taken out of it. We weren't even in the majority yet. Well, that became law. So there are going to be victories as we go, but you're right. First stopping all that was happening, the build back better and the growth of all that. That's one victory. Now, how do we change the course and start winning back the other way? Next, I spoke with the legend, the head ball coach who won at Duke and Florida and won at my beloved University of South Carolina when he was the coach, 1966 Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, the one and only Steve Spurrier. If you were running college football today, what would you change? Are there are there things you would change about the way college football is is run today? Yeah, I think we got a real problem with all this uh, NIL and transfer rules and so forth. Uh, someone said we're just like the NFL now, pro football. And I said, no, we're not because pro football's got rules. You know, they got rules. Uh, once you sign with the team, I think you have to stay there three years before you become a free agent. And then you obviously can go anywhere. And uh, they have a draft, so you don't pay guys uh, before they get there. Uh, You sort of pay them uh, on merit. After they do very well, then they have a chance to earn whatever uh, they're worth. But uh, in college now, with the the, uh, new rules, uh, it's uh, just guys transfer, seems like about every year. I mean, you could go transfer, get a bunch of money. They paid to transfer now. And uh, you can quit even before the season starts and transfer somewhere else. I always wish that uh, we'd kept the recruiting rules pretty much similar. But then after a player got to whatever college he wants to go to, he could do any kind of endorsement uh, that's available. Uh, It's a a deal now that, you know, whoever maybe can pay the most guys, although Texas A&M and Miami, they paid out a bunch and they didn't get much back. So I, I don't know. It doesn't build team camaraderie that this guy's getting two hundred, three hundred thousand. This guy's getting fifteen or twenty. But that's the way we're doing it right now. And if you're in college ball, you just got to adapt to it and jump in there and do what everybody else is doing. I guess. All right, I got a couple more questions, and I'm gonna let right. you go to the golf course or wherever wherever you go. But Jerry Spurrier, um, maybe not as. Famous as her husband, but not far behind. In fact, I think when I went on a tour, I went on a tour with Coach Beamer not long ago. I think the field may be named for you and Jerry Spurrier, your wife. Indoor facility. The indoor facility has got uh, 
Jerry's and my name on it. Uh, Dodie Anderson, who was from the upstate there, she gave the money uh, for the indoor facility, and uh, she told her athletic director, I want to put Jerry and Steve Spurrier name on the facility. So when Coach Tanner called me up, he said, we're going to put your name on the indoor facility. I said, you don't have to do that if you don't. If you got a big dunk, they said, no, no. The lady giving the money said, I ain't giving the money unless you put both of their names on there. But yeah, Jerry was uh, has been was a big influence. It still is uh, everywhere I went. She took care of uh, the, the the coaches, families uh, uh, before the game. They have a little get together, parents before the game, and so forth. Uh, coaching staff, uh, family, and kids. She sat out in the stadium. She didn't sit in the luxury suite. So that's how I was able to give a half a million to South Carolina. I said, y'all go ahead and sell that luxury suite around 50000 a year, I think, is what they sold it for. So anyway, she uh, was a big reason for whatever success I had as a coach. Big reason. When I talk to people that know you or when I told them I was going to have a chance to talk to you, I'd say the word genius comes up, but the word competitive comes up. Are you still competitive? And how do you... Uh, meet that competitive mm-hmm. desire if you're if you're no longer playing, no longer coaching. Well, I'm still attempting to play golf. <laughs> Don't play near like I used to, but uh, obviously, when you get over 75, you get to play way up there. So, uh, in fact, uh, Reynolds Plantation uh, next week. I'm going up there. They have a the Peach Bowl has a, a little coaches golf tournament. Uh, I've been going to since. Uh, I played it with Sterling Sharp. Sterling and I won it uh, back-to-back years, and uh, I haven't won it since. I don't think Sterling can really play. But, uh, yeah, I, I still try to play golf and uh, try to do about everything I used to do, just, just not quite as well. Steve Spurrier is In there. fact, I actually uh, I played with Coach Beamer in it last year. He and I teamed up. And we just didn't putt well. We It's a you know two-man scramble usually. And we missed a bunch of six, eight-putters. You know, we have four or five, something like that. And uh, that's the difference between winning and losing in those events. Uh, but we actually, we played decent, but not, not quite good enough to win. Well, he tells a story, and he's told it publicly, so I'm not divulging. He tells it all the time, but <laughs> I can tell you right now, I can never remember telling a guy in our group to go to another group. So I'm going to say his story is false. And uh, well, he tells it all the time, though. As if it really is true. Uh, but I remember he was nervous that first day he played with us. But I do not remember ever telling a guy, go play with somebody else. Well, I will Maybe say he this. Just felt like that. A guy that can remember what he called 30 years ago on a yeah. third and five must have a pretty good memory. So if you – he loves to say after the first hole you sent him to another group, because he wasn't playing well. He loves to tell that story. So, Yeah, I saw uh, one of the guys at Newscaster there, uh, Henry, what's his first name? And I said, you know I wouldn't do anything like that. He said, well, he tells that story all the time. And I said, well, I don't know why he tells it, but I, I certainly have no memory. And my memory is pretty good. In fact, I did a cameo for a guy that uh, went to West Point, but now he's doing something else and blah, blah, blah. Just sat there and started talking about football. And I said, uh, I've had one game against Army. Uh, when I was at Duke back in 89, and we beat him 35-29. So the guy during the cameo with me looked it up. He said, you beat him 35-29. I said, yeah, the scores just sort of stick with me. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, 
Uh, you know, whoever's got the microphone is usually right. So if he wants to keep telling that one, I guess he's going to keep telling it. Well, I don't know how good his yeah. memory is, but yours is pretty doggone good. If you can remember yeah. Yeah. what Shane Matthews was in a in a spring game, uh, eight of eleven, that's a eight pretty good 11. memory. Three touchdown passes. Yep. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Now, this conversation was a treat for me. I had the opportunity to speak with someone that I have long respected personally and professionally. I think she's brilliant, and perhaps even her brilliance may be even potentially overshadowed by her grace. I mean, just she's one of my favorite people, Dr. Condoleezza Rice. Well, I can't think of anyone. I really cannot think of anyone who left public service more respected or better liked. And those are two different things. But when I shared with people that I was going to have the pleasure of talking to you, it, it is just it's a reaction that I don't get when I share other names with them. So, so I, you left at the height, whether you come back or not, I don't know. You left, (laughs) you you left at the height. I I do two things before I let you go. Is there a book that changed your life and you can't say the Bible? Is there a book that changed your life that you would recommend? And is there anything you wanted to do that you have not yet done? On the books, I'm, I'm going to mention two. Uh, one, because it's pretty thick, but if, if anybody wants to understand what the Russians are and who they are, the Russian people, not Vladimir Putin, there's a book by the, a, a great historian who was also the Library of Congress. His name is Jim Billington. It was called The Icon and the Axe. Now, it's tough going, I'm going to admit, but if you want to understand Russia, please read it. And then there was a book by a band named Hans Morgenthau called Power Among Nations uh, that I read early on as a as a graduate student. And I remember thinking that you have to understand that it is a power game. But my reaction against Morgenthau came later when I started realizing that power is one thing, uh, power without principle is quite another. And so I tried always to keep in mind as uh, as American Secretary of State that Morgan that was right about power among nations, but that America also uh, had to lead from from principle. Anything, I mean, I, I, I could have spent the whole 30 minutes on your resume. I gave short shrift to it because I wanted to ask you about other things. But is there... I mean, your name was discussed for presidential politics, vice president. I mean, is there anything, any job, commissioner of the NFL, head of the USGA, is there anything left that you sit there and lay awake at night and think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be a failure unless I do that? Well, I'm awfully fortunate in that uh, I've had a chance to do some remarkable things. And, uh, I, you know, one of the things that I am now is I'm actually a, a limited owner in the Denver Broncos. So oh, good. I, I could say that one thing that I'm really hoping is that I'll get to stand there with the Lombardi trophy <laughs> one day in the near future. Uh, but I, I 
never think about uh, the things that I wish I had done because I've gotten to do so much and I'm so grateful for what I've gotten to do. And uh, I go right back to my parents, uh, Trey, you know, as a little girl growing up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama, uh, my story's pretty improbable. But um, that little community uh, had uh, a mantra. It was faith, family, and education. And so the one thing that I hope I can really help deliver on is the thing that I think is key to the proper functioning of our democracy. I worry a lot about uh, educational opportunity for particularly the poorest of our kids. And if over the next uh, years, however many more I have in my career, I can keep sounding that alarm uh, about education and keep trying to contribute uh, to the idea that this country was built on opportunity, but opportunity is an empty word without access to education. That's what I'll keep trying to do. The next guest took time out of his busy schedule, which included a run for the presidency, or at least the Republican nomination, to be the president of the United States, our dear friend from the great state of South Carolina, Tim Scott. You and I are both sports nuts. I watch a lot of golf. golf golf's one of these sports where you go off in the woods to hit your ball and you call a penalty on yourself. Nobody saw the right. ball move. No, nobody saw it. The, the ball could just oscillate. Maybe change this position, you call a penalty on yourself. But you and I also watch football, where get away with it as long as you can. If you can hold the receiver, if you can interfere. So I want to go back to the rules. To me, it says something about the character of the people who want to lead us, whether or not they will follow the rules. But I'm, I think I'm in the minority. I, I think yes. most people watching the debate say, if you can do it and get away with it, do it. Yeah, the way I look at Trey, without any question, I was on the base stage. Uh, realize, I realized that while I was on the stage, by the way, that I could score more points by being more salacious, by being offensive and insulting, yet saying nothing. Or I could try to focus on what I believe is in the American people's best interest. I chose the latter, not the former. But the more insults you throw, the more time you receive. The more the person you insulted responds to you, the more time you get to respond to them. But the only thing that's not happening during that chaos is a conversation about why Joe Biden has led to 16 percent inflation. And as a result, the Federal Reserve has had 12 increases in the interest rates, which means that this year, buying the same house two years ago, now between 50 and 70% higher. It means you don't talk about the lost spending power of the average family of thousands upon thousands of dollars. It means that you don't talk about the importance of the tax cut and jobs act and how we were able to lower unemployment for minorities, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians to all-time low for women for a 70-year low or the majority population to a 50-year low. It means that you don't have a, sing a serious conversation about how you tame America's national debt that has exploded under Joe Biden. You, you don't have a conversation about, do we think that men should play sports against men. We don't have a conversation about the fact that the labor force participation rate for men is at an all-time low. Instead, we have a conversation about 
your favorite rap song or, or, or how you respond to someone saying this about you or how the governor who thinks that spending is too high begs for money from the government that is too high. I mean, it, instead of having that conversation that creates a contrast on the stage, you miss some really important issues. Yeah, you... Uh... Yeah, some of those quips were kind of like drive-by shootings to me. I mean, you 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 got to give. I won't be careful what I say here, but when you ask for money and then criticize the person for actually giving you the money, I, I mean that warrants, I think, a little bit of response to people have the impression that presidential candidates are surrounded by dozens, if not hundreds, of people, and that you constantly have this support system. I have the opposite sense that it may be the loneliest thing in the world to run for president. It could be the loneliest feeling. Most of us are never going to run to be the president of the United States. What is it like? Is it is it lonely? Is it exhilarating? Is it educational? All of the above? Yeah. So I'd say the first thing that it is, is a test of your faith. Uh, uh, your faith in God, your faith in your nation, and your faith in your fellow man. The one thing I've, I will have, let's say I, I've learned through this process is faith in God is crucial. Uh, well, whatever you stand on, let it be the rock that never changes. Let, let it be something that is timeless. Those principles that govern are so important. But one of the lessons I've learned from you, Trey, is that I said this earlier, and I'll say it again. If winning at all costs is how we measure success, the nation loses without doubt. The only question is when. You're willing to run for something and lose. It might be the greatest testament to faith you can give to a country to watch. As you've said before, our heroes have all lost, whether it's Jesus to a voice vote to Barabbas, whether it's MLK, ML King or Abraham Lincoln, our great greatest leaders of all time have all lost. But for what purpose did they sacrifice their lives and suffer losses in the public forum, but victory in eternity? That's an important question from my perspective. The second thing I'd say is that you learn a lot about America. And one of the things I've learned about America is that Americans are strong, that the average person in the average place, there's this metal, this resiliency, this grit that is alive and well, and it, and it lets you lean into tomorrow with a little more optimism, even if you're scared to admit it. But the government is weak. As some candidates suggest that America is a nation in decline, that these are dark days. The government is in decline, but the American people are weak. Under Joe Biden, we find ourselves trading this retreat we're retreating from our values, we're retreating from work, we're retreating from free markets and capitalism, but we can just get a new leader and turn the retreat around and head in the right direction. That, that's the blessing that I've learned being on the campaign trail. And the final thing I say I've, I've learned on the campaign trail as well, yeah, there, there, you, can, you can be surrounded by experts, but at the end of the day, if it is to be, it's up to me. That's great news, though. You get to figure out how to handle the challenges that come your way. You get to figure out how to deal with the daily grind. You get to figure out how to deal with yourself when you're tired and a little irritable. The good news is the stronger your faith, the better off you'll be. I'll say this way, Trey. 
the stronger your why, why you're doing what you're doing, the clearer the what, what you need to do to accomplish your goal, the easier the how to get it done. And for me, uh, you know me well, the mission has to be more important than the position. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. And now to conclude this trip down memory lane, I want to leave you with the wise words of one Arthur Brooks. He collaborated with someone who may even possibly be better known than he is. She's actually better known than all of us, Oprah Winfrey, to write his latest book, Build the Life You Want. Cannot tell you the number of people who have like commented to me via my own personal cell phone, my own personal email about the podcast with Arthur Brooks. So build the life you want. And there's nothing short of remarkable to listen to Arthur Brooks. And here he is. I learned something else. I don't know why I thought anger was a secondary emotion. It's um, I'm frustrated, therefore I get angry. I'm disappointed, uh, but my expectations weren't met. I always viewed anger as like a reaction, a secondary emotion. But you make a pretty convincing argument that it, you, you would include it in the primary emotions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's basically six primary emotions. And primary emotions are the ones that are produced by a part of the brain called the limbic system. This is not under your control. The limbic system functions autonomically, which is to say automatically, in response to things that you perceive around you. And all it's doing is sending signals so that you know what's going on and can react. That's all emotions are, just pure data, pure emotion. There's four negative ones. And there's two positive ones, basic emotions. They're, they're primary emotions. The negative ones are fear and anger and sadness and disgust. And they're all evolved in different ways. Anger is evolved because you need to react to things in an aggressive way when, it, when they threaten you. That's why anger was evolved. Now, it's horribly maladapted, right? We get anger all the time because, you know, some guy cut in front of me in traffic. Who cares, man? But, but you interpret it like somebody who's, you know, threatening your life. Or yeah, you, you interpret it as somebody who's going to take your food and you're going to starve to death. Or something. Your, your place in line is like your allotment of food for the month. It's craziness. But, but that we do, we, in modern life, we maladapt a lot of these things. The two positive emotions are joy. Usually when you see somebody in your kin and which or, or something like that, and then there's interest. So people are listening to us right now going, huh, that Trey is talking to that dude at Harvard. That's an interesting conversation. And the reason they keep listening is because it gives, it gives positive emotion, which is interest. We're evolved to be interested in stuff so that we'll, you know, we'll learn a new bush that has berries on it on the Savannah. And we'll say, Oh, that's so interesting. I learned a thing because we get better. Life gets better. We prosper. We pass on our genes. We survive another day. That's how the primary emotions work for bad too good. There's more brain space that's allotted to negative emotions than positive emotions. And the reason for that is that positive emotions are pretty nice to have negative emotions, keep you alive. And so they're actually more important. All right. You convinced me. Um, we need, we need those for our survival. Yeah. But we don't need to like wallow in them. We, yeah. we don't need to dwell in them. Yeah. So 
I mean, the things that get me angry is probably not the right word, but maybe is the things that get my attention are not major things, Arthur. They're not threats to my well-being. They're not. I mean, they're pretty. It's like a bad call in a college football game (laughs) against my team. So, I mean, can I control my negative emotions? Absolutely. And that's a big part of what this book is all about. This is really life changing for a lot of people. You know, when a, when a kid, I mean, when our kids were little, remember that they, they couldn't control their emotions and they would, you know, something would happen. They didn't like, and they would start screaming. And we always said the same thing to our kids when they were little, use your words. What are we telling them? We're telling you to put space between what you feel and how you react. Now, as a, as a neuroscience matter, here's what's really going on. Your limbic system is producing anger. That's what it's doing. It's producing fear. It's producing sadness, producing disgust. It's sending a signal saying that something is not right in your life. That it will send that signal to the, what's called the prefrontal cortex of your brain, the most modern part of your brain, but it takes a minute to get there. And that's where you decide how to react. Little kids don't have the wiring between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. That's why when they feel anger, they yell. When something's funny, they laugh or scream or whatever it happens to be. When something is scary, they cry immediately, right? Because they're reactive. Lots of adults are reactive too, but we don't have to be. You want to get as much space between what you feel and how you react as possible, as much time as possible. That's called metacognition. You need to be aware of your feelings, study your feelings as if they were happening to somebody else. So it's like, so in other words, a call, a, uh, uh, an official makes a bad call, Michigan wins the game. And you're like, Nurr! Hold on a second. Hey, you know, Trey is feeling kind of annoyed by that right now. Now, why would that be? That would be because this feels kind of unjust. But, you know, come to think of it, this is not very, really very much of a threat. I think Trey is kind of reacting to that as if somebody had come and, you know, you know, threatened to carry off his wife from his cave 500,000 years ago. And that seems kind of inappropriate. As a matter of fact, that's kind of amusing. And suddenly you're managing it in a different way. That's a form of metacognition. Arthur, I don't want anybody to come carry my wife out of the cave, but but don't make me pick between the right call on pass interference. And what, I mean, I'm going to pick my wife. Man, you're such a wife. All day long, college football has a predominant role in your happiness. (laughs) Well, she's a big fan of yours, and I know she's going to listen to this podcast. She skips most of mine, but she's a huge fan of yours. In fact, someone on social media asked me within the past week, hey, when are you going to have Arthur Brooks back on your podcast? And this had been on the books for a while to have you on, but you. You have a rabid following, and I can only imagine, I I cannot imagine anyone that doesn't at least have a passing interest in understanding the art, the science of happiness. I I just, I I mean, who would walk up to you and say, you know, Arthur, that book's just not practical. Well, I mean, if it were just theory and just a bunch of neuroscience, it might not be practical. And that's the reason we put a lot of exercises in there about, you know, how you can actually be become more metacognitive. For example, you know, it might it might be kind of hard that every time that you're annoyed in traffic or at a college football game or watching sports or whatever gets your goat, it's hard to, you know, back up and analyze yourself. But, you know, things that are really big, there are ways that you can actually do it. We talk about in the book, for example, you know, when you're feeling sad, when you have a lot of sadness in your life, 
that's why journaling is so critically important because you move the experience from the limbic system of your brain into your prefrontal cortex when you write it down. Another example of that is anxiety. You know, we have a lot of anxiety in our society, a lot of young people in particular, and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have generalized anxiety disorder and they, and they give them a prescription for something, an anti-anxiolytic drug, right? Now, the interesting thing about that is that, that, that you can actually understand your anxiety by noticing that technically anxiety, all it is, is unfocused fear. It's just unfocused fear. And that means is that something is turning up the sensitivity of your amygdala a little too high. It's turning up your, you know, the sensitivity to all of the stuff that's going on around you. And so if you're looking at a lot of social media, that'll make you anxious because it, you're just, you have this kind of unspecified fear that's going on around you. And once you understand that that's happening, cause you're, 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 you're writing down the, like, let me make a list of the five things I'm actually afraid of right now. You're immediately, your anxiety starts to fall. And part of the reason is because you've now taken it from the realm of the ghosts, the hungry ghosts in your head to the CEO in the front, right behind your forehead. Who's like, no, 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 no. We're going to worry about this and this and this. We're not going to worry about that and that and that because your prefrontal cortex can order these things. It can make a list. It can understand the list. And so that's how metacognition really works. And people can do that. But until you get very practical like that, okay, you're feeling anxiety, write down the five or 10 things you're most worried about right now. And that is a, metacognitive technique that will cut your anxiety like a knife. And that's what this book has in it. I can't thank our guests enough for another year of number one, taking time to join our podcast. I know they get lots and lots of invitations and they indulge my questions and they indulge my, you know, sometimes depending on who we're talking to my childlike excitement at talking to people that I never thought I'd have a chance to talk to for highlighting their noteworthy work, which, um, Hopefully, yeah, at the end of it all, uh, makes us better, makes us think, makes us look at things in a different way. And I want to most of all thank you for listening, because just like our guests have challenges and opportunities and other things competing for their time, so do you. So the fact that you would loan us some of your time each week or whenever you're able to do it uh, is a blessing and one that we are extraordinarily appreciative of and for. So we'll be back next week with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. In the meantime, make those New Year's resolutions, including my very favorite New Year's resolution and one that I try to make, which is that I resolve to make no more New Year's resolution. And what I mean by that is if I need to start or stop something, I, I probably need to go ahead and do it now and, and not like wait until the calendar like reflects a certain date. But nonetheless, whether you make resolutions or do not, have a happy new year and welcome to 2024. May it bring you peace and joy and good health. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.